Scripture reading this morning will be in Luke chapter number 20, if you would all stand for the reading of God's Word. Luke 20, we'll be reading verses 19 through 26. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a Daenerys, whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Father, we pray now that you would guide us and teach us as we study scripture and help us to learn more of what it is that you would have for us to do. In the name of Christ, we pray this. Amen. You may be seated. Now, some of you might be thinking after reading a text like that, that this is going to be a very short sermon. Uh, some people came up to Jesus. They asked him if we need to pay taxes or not. Jesus said, yes. End of story, right? Uh, is that all there is to it? Uh, spoiler alert, the answer is no. Now, if Jesus had simply said to them, yes, you should pay your taxes, then this would be a very short sermon. Uh, but unfortunately for you all, that isn't all that he said. Uh, Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. That is not, just, uh, that is not the same as just simply saying, uh, yes, pay your taxes. It includes pay your taxes, but it's so much more than that. And really, what Jesus says in that one sentence has implications that affect everything. How you work at your job, how you pay your taxes, how you relate in your marriage, even how you drive home today. Uh, all of it relates to that one sentence, give to God what is God's. And hopefully by the time we're through today, you'll see that. So I've got my work cut out for me this morning, uh, trying to convince you that this is far bigger and far more important of a text than simply saying pay your taxes. We start in verse 19, which we read last week, but I need to remind you of it here. It says, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him, on Jesus, at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Now, this sets up the text today. If you were here with us last week, uh, we saw that parable of Jesus that he had told about the coming judgment against uh, the religious leaders of Jerusalem. Uh, and, of course, they realized exactly what he was saying. They knew that he was talking about them. And so they got very upset, and they wanted to kill Jesus even more. But they can't just grab him and kill him because the crowds of people are on his side. He's very popular with the Jews in Jerusalem at this time. If they tried to arrest him there, there'd be a mob reaction in no time because Jesus had the crowds of people following him around everywhere he went, uh, listening to him teach. And so the chief priests and scribes need to do two things in order to accomplish their goal of killing Jesus. That's their end goal. They want to get rid of Jesus. But there's a couple of obstacles in their way. First of all, the end of verse 19 says they feared the people. So they need to do something uh, to turn the crowds against Jesus. They need to turn popular opinion away from Christ. And then the second thing they need to accomplish is they, they need to have some sort of uh, pretext for arresting him and turning him over to Rome. Uh, Israel is under Roman occupation at this time, and so the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, they don't have the authority to just arrest somebody and kill them. Uh, they need to have some sort of reason. They need to convince the Roman governor, Pilate in this case, that Jesus needs to be killed because of some sort of violation of the law. 
And so this is what they're trying to accomplish with these questions. They're trying to turn the favor of the people against Jesus, and they, they're trying to come up with some sort of reason, uh, reason, excuse, basically, to arrest Jesus and have him killed by the government. And so verse 20 says, So they watched him, and they sent spies, who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. And so that's what they're after. They're trying to get Jesus to slip up in something that he says. And so these people come up to him with trick questions to try to get Jesus in trouble. Uh, Mark's account of this story adds in verse 13 of chapter 12 that they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. In his talk. Uh, the Pharisees are the Jewish uh, teachers of the law. The Herodians were more of a political group. They were the followers of Herod. And so it's kind of odd that these two groups would be working together. Uh, also, a little bit later, we'll see next week, the Pharisees and Sadducees team up against Jesus. All these groups that have really a lot uh, that, that separates them. They're not alike at all. Uh, but the one thing they agreed on is that they wanted Jesus dead. And so they're working together to plot against him with these sneaky questions. Uh, these are attempts to trip Jesus up in his words. Sort of like when somebody asks you, you know, when did you stop beating your wife? Uh, there's no good answer to that question. It's just a stupid question to try to get you in trouble. And that's what they're trying to do here. Verse 21, they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. <laughs> they're really buttering him up before asking their question. Verse 22, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Now, in asking, is it lawful, they're not referring here to Roman law. Obviously, it was lawful according to the Romans. It was, they, they were told to do this. Uh, what, what they're asking here is about God's law. That's why they start out by saying, we know that you teach the way of God. So tell us, uh, would God want us to give our taxes to Caesar? And as a Jew, the assumption to, would be no. Uh, Israel was supposed to be ideally a theocracy, like in the Old Testament. And their authority was God. And so the question is, should we as Jews pay taxes to the pagan Roman government? Now, this is a very clever question, uh, because in their minds, it's bound to accomplish at least one of the two goals that they're shooting for. Because if Jesus says, yes, you should pay your taxes to Rome, uh, that's going to hurt his popularity with the Jewish people. They hated Rome. They hated their taxes. Uh, paying taxes to the Roman government was basically admitting that you were submitting to their authority over you. And the Jews were hoping that Jesus was their Messiah who would free them from the Roman government. They were looking for him to launch a military rebellion against Rome. And so if Jesus says, yes, you should pay taxes to the Romans, uh, the crowds of people are going to turn on him very quickly. But if Jesus says, no, uh, don't pay taxes to Rome, well, that would be just as good for them because now they have their case to bring to the Roman government. Uh, they could go to the authorities and say, look, this Jesus fellow is teaching people to not pay taxes to you. Uh, you better take care of this guy. He's causing problems. And so if Jesus says pay, then he's considered a traitor to Israel. If he says don't pay, then he's considered a criminal by the government. If he says pay the taxes, he's going to lose favor with the people. If he says don't pay, he's going to be in trouble with the law. And so they think they've got Jesus in a corner with this question. And notice how they ask the question, should we pay taxes or not? Uh, they want a simple yes or no uh, to this question. And so, uh, again, they think that they've got him in trouble, whether he says yes or no. Verse 23, but he perceived their craftiness and said to them, verse 24, show me a denarius. 
Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. Now, this isn't hard for us to imagine. If you pull a coin out of your pocket right now, you'll see somebody's face on it. It might be Abe Lincoln or George Washington or whoever. Uh, Roman currency, the face on the coin was Caesar's, the emperor of Rome. His likeness and inscription was on the coin. It had his face stamped on it and his name uh, etched in every coin. And so verse 25, he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning on that incredible uh, sentence, so much packed into those few words. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and give to God the things that are God's. First of all, we see that Jesus affirms the authority of Caesar. Uh, government has a sphere of legitimate authority, and we ought to honor and submit to the authorities over us, in this case, the Roman government. God also has authority over us. And so when Jesus refers to things that are Caesar's and things that are God's, he's teaching us that there are these two categories, two realms of authority. And so you've got things that belong to God, and you have things that belong to Caesar. Now, just what is it that belongs to Caesar? Well, for one thing, taxes, right? That's obviously what they're asking him about. That would fit in the category of things that belong to Caesar. Uh, in other words, the government has the right to tax us. They have the, the authority to demand that we pay taxes. They also have the authority to establish other laws that govern our lives and how we interact with one another. These are aspects of our life over which the state has the right to tell us what to do. Now, the next question is, well, what are God's things? Uh, what is it that belongs to God? <laughs> Everything, right? I mean, doesn't God have authority over all of our lives? And so, by the way, I think this is what Jesus is asked, why he asked the question back in verse 24. Whose likeness and whose inscription is on the coin? Uh, he's drawing a connection there. The coin bears the image of the emperor of Rome. Therefore, give to Caesar what is his, this coin, and give to God what bears his image and likeness. And if you're familiar with the first chapter of the Bible, bells should be going off in your mind right now. Genesis 1, verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So render to Caesar the thing with his image on it, with his likeness. Render to God what has his likeness on it, and that's you and me. We bear the image of God. Uh, by the way, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, the apostles and Jesus, this would have been their Bible, they quote from it frequently. It uses the same Greek word here in Genesis 1.26 for likeness that is used in our text in Luke. And so then Jesus says in verse 24, show me a Daenerys, Whose, whose likeness and inscription does it have? They say Caesar's. And so he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And I can imagine Jesus pointing to the coin as he says, give to Caesar what is his. And then he points to the people in front of him and says, give to God what belongs to him. Now, Luke doesn't say that he pointed. I'm speculating at that point. But this is clearly the point he's trying to get across, is that Caesar's image is on this coin. He has the right to tax you. God's image is on you as a human, and so he has a right to lay claim on each one of us. And so then we really need to revise our visual here a bit. It's not that there's two separate spheres of authority, as if Caesar is over some parts of your life and God is over other parts of your life. 
Rather, God has authority over all of your life. And Caesar's authority over some is within God's authority over all of it. Okay, so it's sort of like this. God has authority over all of your life. Caesar has authority over part of your life. But Caesar's authority is a subset of God's authority over you. God's authority over your life and mine is ultimate. It encompasses every area of our life. Caesar's authority over us, on the other hand, is limited and derivative. And so as Christians, it is as we serve God that we serve Caesar, which leads to the next point. Yes, we should submit to Caesar in submission, ultimately, to God. Caesar has authority, and God has authority. God's authority is ultimate. Caesar's authority is limited and subservient to God's authority, which leads to this conclusion. Submitting to Caesar for the follower of Jesus is ultimately submission to God. And this is how Jesus can say, yes, you should pay taxes to Rome without saying that Rome is the ultimate authority or that Jesus has replaced God as the supreme Lord over us. He's not saying that. He says, pay taxes, but do so recognizing that God is your Lord, not Caesar. We don't submit to the government because they have intrinsic authority or lordship over us. Rather, we do so as subjects of our king. And so he says, pay. But in saying, pay your taxes, he's not saying Caesar is Lord. If everything belongs to God, then the things that belong to Caesar belong to him derivatively. If Caesar has any rights to things at all, it's only because God gave it to him. And we'll see that more in just a minute. Now, I'm going to try to transition from this text to a much broader application, uh, because I think the principle here of submission to Caesar as submission to God ultimately is not only true of the Christian's relationship to the government, but also to other human authorities. In fact, all human authorities in our lives. All submission to human authority is ultimately worship of God as the supreme authority over us. That's the sermon in a nutshell. Uh, we are to submit to human authorities over us ultimately as worship and service to God, who alone has supreme authority over us. And I'm going to try to prove that right now. First of all, Let's stay within the realm of government authority for now. John 19, uh, this is where the chief priests and religious leaders, they finally arrest Jesus. So we're fast forwarding here a bit. Uh, they arrest Jesus. They take him to Pilate for permission to kill him. Verse 6 says, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his, his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? He, he's, he's rebuking Jesus for remaining silent when he asks him a direct question. He says, you know, Do you know who you're talking to? Uh, I'm the authority here. I can set you free or I can kill you. Notice Jesus' response in verse 11. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Notice that Jesus does not deny Pilate's authority. Pilate did have authority, but only because it had been given to him from God. Paul affirms this God-given authority that the government has over us in Romans 13, where he writes, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Notice the conjunction for 
at the beginning of that second sentence there in verse 1. Uh, one of the most important words to pay attention to in the Bible are these coordinating conjunctions like for, uh, therefore, because. These words show the connection between statements. And so verse 1 begins by saying, submit to governing authorities. Uh, why? The answer is the rest of the verse. For or because there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So that's the reason that we submit to them. That's the grounds of our submission. We don't submit to Caesar because he's Lord over us. He isn't. We submit to the government because they have been given authority over us by God. And so our submission to them is ultimately submission to God. Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. He's saying there, if you don't submit to the government, you're resisting the authority of God. Verse 3, for rulers are not a, a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he, speaking of you know, the, the governing authorities, he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Paul is saying there that government exists to punish those who are doing wrong. And so God says, submit to their laws uh, because they, the governing authorities, are God's servants over you. And by submitting to their authority, you are submitting to God's authority. Verse 5, therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, Respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So do Christians pay taxes? Yes. Uh, do we submit to the governing authorities over us? Yes. And we do so as an act of worship to God, understanding that they are appointed by God to rule over us. And so by obeying them, we are ultimately obeying God. Uh, Peter said something similar in 1 Peter chapter 2. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, and, and just notice there in verse 13, be subject to every human institution for the Lord's sake. We submit to them as an act of worship and service to our God, as who is ultimately our, our Lord. And so we are to uh, be subject to them, to every institution, whether it be an emperor as supreme or to governors, verse 14, as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Notice that. Honor everyone, honor the emperor, but fear God. Have respect for government, but don't fear them. Fear God. And in fearing God, we honor the emperor. Honor and respect for governing authorities over us is because, or it should be, because we fear God, and he has commanded us to obey them. So Jesus, Paul, Peter, they're all saying the same thing. Render to Caesar what is his, and do so as you render everything to God. Now, I said that this goes far beyond just our relationship to government. I believe all of our submission to God-given human authorities over us should ultimately be done as worship to God, as the supreme authority in our lives. Let me show you what I mean. We're going to walk through two very similar texts in Paul's letters. 
uh, Colossians 3 and then Ephesians 5. And as we go, you'll see that Paul is teaching uh, children to submit to their parents, wives to submit to their husbands, servants to submit to their masters, and all of it is in submission ultimately to God. So let's begin in Colossians 3, verse 18, which says, Wives, submit, your, uh, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. By the way, just as a side note, we'll see this more as we go. Uh, Paul is always very careful to balance out these statements. As soon as he says, wives, submit to your husbands, he turns right around and says to the husbands, this doesn't mean you get to be a domineering jerk to her. Uh, he says to servants, submit to your masters. And then he immediately says, and masters, make sure you treat them right. He says to children, obey your parents. And then immediately follows it up with dads, uh, don't be harsh to your kids. And so uh, don't ever take these statements about authority and submission to mean that the one in authority has the right to domineer and behave in an abusive fashion. That is not at all the case. But there are these God-given roles of authority and submission clearly laid out in Scripture. The one in authority has a responsibility before God to steward their authority well and to lead with honor. The one in submission has a responsibility to follow and submit to their God-given authority. Notice back in verse 18 that it says, Wives are to submit to husbands as is fitting in the Lord. In other words, you submit because God wants you to. Uh, so your submission to your husband ultimately is obeying God, not just him. Uh, verse 20, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Again, notice the motivation. He doesn't just say to children, obey your parents. Uh, he says, obey them ultimately as obedience to God. You do this because it pleases the Lord. You submit to your parents as an act of worship to God. Verse 21, there's the balancing statement. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Then we see bond servants, verse 22. And uh, we're not going to go into detail right now about what a bond servant is. Suffice it to say, in today's culture, uh, these principles would be applying to um, workers and their employers. It's not quite the same in that culture, but it's very similar. We could explain that, but that would take long to, uh, to go over. So these are instructions to people who work for someone else. They, they make their living by working. Uh, verse 22, bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Notice that again, Paul says, obey your employers, not just to please them, uh, but God. Don't do it just for them, do it for the Lord. Whatever you do, verse 23, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So in your submission to your boss at work, you should be submitting to him as an authority under God. And so as you serve him as an act of worship and service to your Lord. Verse 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly knowing that you ha also have a master in heaven. Again, just showing you that the balancing statement is always there. After saying, you know, bond servants, submit yourselves to your masters, serve them in service of God. He turns right around to the masters and says, make sure you treat them right because you also have a master in heaven. Jesus has authority over all of us who are made in his image, whether we're servants, whether we're masters. And so that's Colossians 3. Wives submit to husbands, children submit to parents, workers submit to their employers, and all of it is to be done as worship to God. Now over to Ephesians 5. You're going to probably see some things here and think I'm rereading Colossians, but I'm not. Uh, it sounds very similar. 
This comes right at the end of a list of things in Ephesians 5. Paul says, uh, do certain things, don't do these other things. And he's describing what the life of a follower of Jesus should look like. Verse 21, he says, we should be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Notice that. Why do we submit? Out of reverence as an act of worship to God. We submit to one another. We submit ourselves to human authorities in our lives as an act of reverence and submission to Christ. And then he immediately jumps into some examples of this. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Uh, He doesn't just say, wives, submit to your husbands. He always says, do it as to the Lord. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And then here comes the balancing statement to husbands. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Uh, Chapter 6 of Ephesians 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Uh, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or free. Masters do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Do you see the pattern there? All of our submission is an act of worship and service to God. Children are to submit to their parents. Wives are to submit to their husbands. Workers are to submit to their employers. Citizens are to submit to the government, all in ultimate submission to our Lord, who has authority over all of our life. And so we render to Caesar and to mom and dad and to boss and to our husband, we render to them the submission they rightly have over us. And in so doing, we render to God what is his, and that is all of our life. So what I'm saying and what I believe Jesus is saying along with Paul is that in all of our relationships in which we are to submit to human authorities over us, we do so as an act of worship. We submit to our authorities ultimately in submission to Christ who is our Lord. And I think this view of submission as worship leads to four implications. First one is this. Christians should have a reputation in the world of happy submission to authority. Of course, Jesus exemplified this. Uh, Before Pilate, he stood on trial and they could find nothing wrong with him. Uh, They affirmed his status as a law-abiding citizen. And we as Christ followers ought to have the same reputation. Paul says in Titus chapter 2, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient to be ready for every good work. This is a command of scripture to Christians that we would be submissive to rulers and authorities, be obedient to those over us. Christians should have this reputation in the world. 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good works your good deeds, and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, 
whether it be to emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Notice here the reasons that Peter provides for submitting ourselves to human authorities is to put to silence the ignorance of foolish people so that our conduct out in the world would be honorable so that they would see our good deeds and glorify God. Christians should have a reputation of happy submission. For the sake of our testimony in the world, this should be our attitude. Titus 2 verse 4, So train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So we submit to the authorities in our life, and in so doing, we display godly lives to the world around us. A little later in Titus 2, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Our happy submission to human authorities as an act of worship to God adorns our doctrine. This should be our reputation in the world. Next implication. And this one will seem like I'm contradicting everything that I've said so far, but hang with me. We as followers of Jesus must disobey human authorities when they order us to do something that dishonors God. You say, how is that an implication of this submission as worship? Well, back to our circles. Uh, in submission to Caesar, we remember that God is our ultimate authority. Uh, he has supreme right to rule over us in every area of our life. Now, God has delegated some of that authority to government, but there are times when the government tells us to do something that contradicts the commands of God. And when Caesar's orders are now outside the bounds of God's commands, we must remember to whom we owe our ultimate allegiance. Uh, God is the supreme authority. Caesar can only tell us what to do within God's commands. Put another way, Caesar's claim on our lives is limited. Uh, God's claim is total. And so we are to disobey government when they tell us to do something that contradicts God's will. I'm not going to take time to look at these examples, but a great little book in the Old Testament that exemplifies this is the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel and his friends had a great reputation in Babylon. They were known for their excellent spirit. Daniel chapter 1 tells us that Daniel had uh, gained the favor of the authorities in his life. And so when he asked them to allow him to basically eat kosher meals in keeping with uh, the Jewish laws, they listened to him and they granted his request. He had purposed in his heart that he wasn't going to break God's laws for Israel in eating this meat that they had offered him. And because Daniel had such a reputation of happy submission, he never had to fight the leadership of the government. He just asked if he could abide by his convictions. And after a little convincing, they said yes, because he had gained favor with them. And so Daniel is a great example of someone who had this reputation of happy submission. Now, later in the book of Daniel, there were times when the Babylonian government had to be disobeyed because they started to command the Jews to do things that violated God's commands. For example, the famous story of the fiery furnace. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar told all the people to bow down before this idol of himself that he had constructed. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, sorry, we, we can't do that. Uh, God is our Lord. We cannot bow down to any idols. He's told us not to. And so they were willing to face the consequences of civil disobedience. Uh, later in the book of Daniel, King Darius decrees 
throughout Babylon that no one is allowed to pray anymore. And Daniel says, again, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Uh, God has commanded me to pray to him. And so even if it's against the law, I'm going to do it anyway. So go ahead, feed me to the lions. I'm going to obey God. And so in this one little book then, we have very clear guidelines for us in thinking about our submission to government. We should submit to our leaders happily as an act of worship to God, unless they tell us to do something that God forbids, or they tell us not to do something that God commands. If they say, bow down to this idol, we ignore them and obey God. If they tell us, don't pray anymore, we ignore them and obey God. But unless they are telling us to do something that conflicts with God's commands, we are otherwise to happily submit to them in worship to God. In the book of Acts, we see this exemplified for us again. Uh, The apostles are arrested by the governing authorities in Jerusalem, and they're commanded to stop preaching the gospel. Uh, Don't talk about Jesus anymore. It's against the law. And so Peter says in response, verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. Uh, This is the same Peter who wrote that we are to be subject to all human authorities. And so when they, you know, he understood this dynamic that, yes, we submit to human government, ultimately in submission to God. But when they cross the line, when they begin to tell us to do something that isn't compatible with serving Christ, then we disobey them because God is the higher authority in our life. And again, I think this applies broadly, not just in terms of government. If your boss, if your husband, if if your government leader tells you to do something that conflicts with God's will for you, they've just exceeded their level of authority over you. You can't obey that order in worship of God. And that's the reason that we submit. We do so ultimately in submission to Christ. And so I am only to submit to a human authority insofar as they are staying in their lane. But at the same time, as Christians, there should be such a consistent pattern of happy submission that in those rare instances in which we have to obey, that should be shocking to the world. Uh, They should think of Christians as good, law-abiding citizens that that would never do something like this. But then when we say, hey, uh, God's given us a command and you've conflicted that, those should be very rare instances in our lives. Christians should have this reputation of happy submission to human authorities. We should be known as the best citizens so that when we must disobey, we should do so with a Daniel attitude, not trying to be obstinate about it, just saying, I can't do that. God has ultimate authority over me. And by the way, I didn't really talk about this earlier, but these principles, I believe, apply in the church as well. Uh, The head of the church is not the pastor. The head of the church is Christ. Uh, We are to submit to pastors ultimately in submission to God, which means if a pastor ever tells you to do something that conflicts with what Christ has told you, forget the pastor and do what God says. You ought to obey God rather than men. This is true in all authorities in our lives. Now, let me digress for just a moment to talk about COVID, because I'm sure many of you are thinking about it right now. Uh, Over the last couple of years, we have witnessed uh, a major split among Christians in how they relate to the government with regard to these COVID rules for churches. Uh, The government in some states said, uh, you're not allowed to gather as a church. Other states said a bit later, you can gather, but only in small numbers, or you can gather, but you're not allowed to sing. Uh, And it was a very tricky situation to sort out exactly what to do, because we do have a responsibility to submit to the government. This is part of what it means to follow Christ. We should have the reputation of happy submission to those that God has placed in positions of leadership over us. But at the same time, 
We also must obey God rather than men. And so God does command us to gather and to worship him. He doesn't tell us how often to gather. Nowhere in the Bible does it say thou shalt gather every Sunday. Uh, But it does say we are to gather regularly for fellowship, for preaching of the word, for encouragement, spiritual accountability. These are commands of God. And so if the government says you can't do that for the next two weeks, uh, okay, well, maybe that's okay. Maybe we can submit to that rule of the state while still obeying Christ. But if the government says uh, you can't do any of that for the next six months or for the foreseeable future, like they did in California in 2020, uh, now that's a real problem for Christians because we have to recognize the higher authority in our life is God. And so over these last couple of years, different churches have come to different conclusions on how to handle all of this. Uh, Some have said we ought to follow all the rules and not meet until the government says so because Romans 13 says submit to the government. Others said we ought to obey God rather than men, so rebel against the rules in obedience to Christ. And there were good Christians on both sides of that divide. It was a very weird time where complex decisions had to be made. And it would be easy for us here today to judge those who came to different conclusions than we did here, but let's be honest, uh, we weren't in their situation Um, Here in Indiana, nobody was being arrested for going to church like they were in other states. Uh, We weren't being fined thousands of dollars for meeting as a church. And so we had it relatively easy. Other churches in other states had much harder decisions to make. And it isn't always easy to tell when the government has crossed the boundary of their legitimate authority. And just please note here, I'm not really giving any answers or opinions on what I think ought to have been done. I'm just pointing out that over the last couple of years, Christians have had to really think about what does it mean to give to Caesar what is his while also giving to God what is his. And I'll just add one more complexity to the situation and then we'll move on. And that is this. Uh, Our government in America isn't the same as the Roman Empire. Therefore, while the principle of obeying our leadership is true in both cases, it applies slightly differently to us. Here's what I mean. In Rome, if the emperor commanded something, it was the law. He had absolute authority over his empire. If he commanded something, that was the rule. In America, that's not how it works. Our leaders uh, pass laws. They don't just stand up and declare things, generally speaking. So as a kind of absurd analogy, if Joe Biden wakes up tomorrow and decides that for the safety of all Americans, it is now illegal to drive any faster than 25 miles per hour, if he just declares that to be the law, Uh, 25 miles per hour, that is the national speed limit. Okay, that's not law. That's not binding on us as citizens. That's not how our government functions. So we don't have to submit to just whatever one leader happens to say in a given situation. It's not that simple. But if Congress passed a law limiting the speed limit to 25 miles an hour, as dumb and inconvenient as that would be, we ought to obey it. Because at that point, it is the law. And we must submit to the laws of our nation in obedience to Christ. And so the principle needs to be thought through and carefully applied. It's not as simple simple as saying, well, this governing authority said so. Uh, The question is, does that make it a law? And if so, we are to submit in submission to Christ. I know all of that was a bit tangential to what we're talking about today, but I thought it would be a good opportunity to explain uh, some of what Christians have had to wrestle with the last couple of years. Next implication of submission as an act of worship. We don't submit because of who our human authority is. Okay, it doesn't matter who they are. Uh, We submit to all legitimate authorities because God has commanded us to. Uh, By the way, when Romans 13 was written, uh, the passage where Paul tells them, submit to all of your leaders, Nero was the emperor, not exactly a great guy. 
And yet, Paul said he's in charge. Submit to him. Because it's not about who the leader is. We don't just submit to the leaders that we agree with. We submit uh, not because they are worthy of our submission. We submit because God is worthy and he has told us to. And by the way, lest you think mistakenly that I am somehow living up to my own sermon this morning, let me assure you that I'm not. Uh, This is something that I struggle with quite a bit. For example, sometimes I'll be out here uh, mowing the lawn or shoveling snow or something here at the church, and I'll watch, and you all have probably seen this, cops just blow right through the stop sign right out front here. And I think to myself, uh, why should I come to a complete stop when the police don't even come to a complete stop? You don't deserve my submission to your stupid rule that you don't even abide by. And so I need to hear from Jesus today, don't do it for them. Do it in obedience to me. Sometimes I'm tempted to not pay my full taxes. Uh, You know, you go to file your taxes, you put that first W-2 in, it's like, oh, you get a $3,000 refund. And then you put the next W-2 down, now you owe $2,000. And it's so tempting to just go back and delete that one. They'll never know. And, uh, And just take the refund. And it's easy to justify. I mean, the government wastes my money anyways. Why should I give them all of this? This is bad stewardship. But God says to us, don't do it for them. Do it for me. Pay your taxes, not because of who they are, but in worship of your Lord. You say, my boss at work is lazy. He just puts everything on me. He doesn't deserve for me to work hard and with integrity. Why should I be a good worker for him? And God says to you, don't do it because of who he is. Do it because of who I am doesn't matter if you have a good boss or not. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 3 continues with the same idea. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. This isn't just a command Uh, to wives if you happen to be married to a great Christian man. Uh, Even if a Christian lady is married to an unsaved man, Peter says, submit to them, have a respectful attitude towards them. And you know why wives struggle to submit to their husbands? Uh, Because sometimes husbands are idiots. Uh, All the ladies are really wanting to say amen right now. I can see it in your faces. But uh, husbands do stupid things. And so submission Uh, isn't about who your husband is or if he's always going to make the best decision. Submission isn't about him at all. It's about your worship to God. And what better way to show your devotion and worship of Christ than to be subject to the knucklehead of a husband that you might have or the uh, mean-spirited boss that you might have? All of our submission is ultimately to Christ. It doesn't matter uh, who that person happens to be that's in that position of authority. We We submit to them as an act of worship to God. All of our life is to be in service to God. That's what render to God what is God's means. It's everything. Just like the coin has Caesar's likeness stamped on it and thus belongs to Caesar, you and I have been stamped with the image of God, and therefore we owe our lives to him. When we go to work, we ought to work as motivated by our love for Christ. As we pay our taxes and obey our government leaders, we do so in submission ultimately to God. Christians submit to others in submission, ultimately, to Christ. And we ought to view it that way. Uh, Maybe even say to yourself, when you know you're supposed to do something, you're supposed to submit, you don't want to, maybe just mutter under your breath, I'm not doing this for you, I'm doing this for God. I'm going to go to work, I'm going to do my best, not because I love my supervisor and he's so great, no. I'm going to go work for him with integrity 
because my service is really through him to God. Every day as we go about our daily lives, we ought to be aware and actively considering our service to Christ. Each morning, we should commit ourselves to the Lord. Being a Christian isn't just about an hour on Sunday mornings when we come to church. Every hour, throughout every day, we should live as subjects of God's kingdom, partly for the sake of our witness to the world, partly as worship to God. He is pleased by our happy submission to human leaders. We should drive the speed limit, not because we just don't want to get a ticket, but because we're serving God by submitting. We should do what our boss says, not just for a raise, but in service to Christ. And so this sermon this morning really is incredibly practical. This should affect how you hear this sermon right now. This should affect how you drive on your way home today. This should affect how you go to work tomorrow. This should affect how you file your taxes in a couple of months. Uh, this should affect how you argue with your spouse. Uh, this should affect how you submit in every one of the areas we're called to submit in. All of it should be done as worship to God. Not just fear of punishment or some sort of duty or to get a paycheck or whatever other motivation we may have. We should live as servants of God. And when that is your motivation, your submission is better. All of our submission to human authorities is submission to God. It's because he has called us to submit to them, not because of anything in them. All humans are imperfect, flawed leaders. We don't submit to them because our leaders are perfect. We don't submit to employers because they're great and they're perfectly fair to us. We do so because we serve God. And how we serve those God has placed over us reflects how we view God's authority over us. All of my life is to be lived in service to my Lord. He owns me. And part of what it means to live for him is to submit to those whom he has placed in authority over me. A part of what it means to serve God is to submit ourselves to those whom God has placed as authorities over us. He is our king, and he sends us into the world to live under other little kings. And so we render to Caesar what is Caesar's, while rendering to God what is God's. All of our obedience belongs to him, including that which belongs to Caesar. And so verse 26, after giving this answer, it says, They were not able in the presence of the people, to catch him in what he said. Their plan was foiled. Uh, they thought they had this great uh, question that would corner him and get him in trouble, and of course he evaded their trap. And it says, marveling at his answer, they became silent. And that's pretty much what I've been doing this last week, marveling at the answer that Jesus gives here, the profundity within it. But of course, they aren't done trying to trip up Jesus. Next week, they'll be back with another stupid question, and Jesus will once again set them straight. And until we come back next week, Make sure this week, as you go throughout your day, as you go throughout even today, that you're serving Christ ultimately.